friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Show. So glad you could join us here today. Another great show today. We're going to be talking with Kristen Schmidt. She's a writer, writer for many, many different publications. A really cool uh, background and a story of perseverance, I think, is the best way to describe it. So looking forward to talking to Kristen here. Our sponsor today is going to be Lacrosse. And one of the things I love about reading our sponsors or talking about our sponsors is my own personal experience with the brand. And if you've been, been hunting, if you're a serious hunter at all, most people have probably owned or currently own a pair of lacrosse boots. And I certainly have had my share. And right now I can tell you, I, I have, I don't know how many years in a row or how many, uh, any, how many boots in a row that I've purchased the Alpha Burley rubber boots. I've been a huge fan of those for a long time. I've got a pair of those that I love, but also I'm trying the new Atlas boots, which are, they're, they're sort of a, a leather uh, waterproof hybrid, I guess would be the way to describe them. Very comfortable. And I've worn them about three times now, and I can personally speak to how comfortable those boots are. I love them, but more importantly, I just love the relationship that we have with, with lacrosse. They don't just support us and our conservation. They support many different conservation organizations. So you're in the market for a pair of boots, be sure to check out lacrosse's lineup. They've got something there to make you happy, I'm sure. Uh, also, quickly, I want to mention we're still doing the promo for uh, membership, $5 off a membership by using the code podcast. So instead of a $35 membership, you can uh, become a member for 30 And one other membership offer we're running right now that I want to mention, and this has been very, very popular. And this is the membership deal we're doing with First Light. So for 75 bucks, now listen to this list of things you get. You get, not only do you get your one-year membership, you also get the National Deer Association hat in First Light, super high quality item. You get our, obviously our four issues of NDA quality Whitetails magazine. You also get a $25 first light gift card. So between the value of the hat and the gift card alone, you're over 50 bucks right there. And so you're really getting those two items plus your membership for 25 bucks. And then you get that $25 coupon, like I said, the first light and a percentage of the sales of Spectre Camo with our friends at first light comes back to the NDA. So this is really, uh, we really closed the circle on this one. And so we're excited to bring it to you. And like I said, it's been popular. You might say, well, geez, I just renewed my membership last week. Not to worry. Your memberships will stack. So if you really like this promo and you want one of those hats, jump on it. And then you'll end up with a, even if you just renewed, you'd have four years worth of membership. So wanted to make sure you were aware of that promo. The doctor is with us. Good to see you, Mike. Um, we're going to go through some ask NDA anything questions. And I know you're excited about it. As always, because I, I like that participation. I mean, we're seeing, uh, we're, we're up over 20 reviews. They're all looking good. We got a recent one from Pittsburgh REI. So thank you very much for that. So yeah, just let us know, reach out. I mean, they can contact you via your email for an ask NDA question, um, provide us a review, sit down and give us a five-star rating. We appreciate it. So yeah, anytime that we see that participation, that means that we're connecting with listeners. I like it. Well, I gotta, I gotta say, we have a long list of questions and it's probably because I, I sounded like I was begging for them in the last show. <laughs> you, you weren't, you weren't begging, you were guilting people. I will, I will call you out on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Let's start going through these. I'm not, I, I thought about just sort of picking one or two that we like, but I want to go through most of these if we can, because I think it's a great segment to the show and I'm going to give the doctor credit for coming up with the idea. So let's just jump into them. And some of these I respond, I've already responded in an email, um, but uh, I want to be able to read these because other people may have these same questions. And the first one is, what's the coffee ritual for you guys? It's a coffee and beer podcast. So I'm assuming you have a recommendation or a preferred coffee shop or style. Uh, be it a gas station coffee or at, uh, an at-home French press. Mike, I know what your ritual is, but why don't you go ahead and give it? Let's, you better go first so I don't chase everybody away. <laughs> well, you know, I think honesty is the best policy here in full disclosure, but I will. Yeah, I'll go first. I'm a coffee guy, absolutely. 
Uh, I, I like it dark and I don't like sugar or cream in it. So I like black coffee. I do like gas, gas station coffee, no doubt about that. And in this area, we have a place called Sheets that uh, actually it's in several states in the east, particularly the northeast. I like their coffee, but about any gas station coffee. But I also I would be remiss if I didn't say check out our November Rise coffee. Uh, you can find that through the National Deer Association website. We have a partnership with those folks. I, uh, I love that coffee, have plenty of it. And that's what we brew here at home. But I'm a two cup a day guy. And uh, sometimes if I'm having a slow afternoon, I'll, I'll brew another pot. So that's my ritual. All right. So here's my chance to break everybody's heart. I, I don't drink coffee. I, if you uh, recall that movie uh, that Will Ferrell was in kicking and screaming where he goes into the coffee shop and he says, Hey, I'm new to coffee. I don't want too much. Um, I have tried coffee. It is for some strange reason and I can't express why. Um, it's just something that has never really pulled me in. So Nick can carry the coffee end of this and I'll try and carry the deer end just to be fair. That's all called balance, but for full disclosure, um, but I will say this, if someone out there was not a coffee drinker and they're like, Hey, you have a recommendation, I'd be willing to try that. So that could be the, the segment. What, 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 uh, coffee is the doctor going to try this week? I guess. I don't know. You can send your complaints to Nick at deerassociation.com <laughs> and, uh, I'll be sure to probably not deal with them. So anyway, uh, yeah, the doctor doesn't drink coffee. Another question, by the way, this is from Sean. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania, actually. Before I get into that next question, though, I have to correct something that I said just a few moments ago. I called our coffee November Rise. It's November Dawn. November Dawn. It's a dark roast. I had a hand in that. As I told you, I like my coffee strong. And so biggamebrew.com is where you can buy it. And a portion of the proceeds come back to support the National Deer Association. All right. So let's get back to the next question. It says, relevant to some acreage that my family maintains and hunts, grapevines have taken over some areas that had been left to grow naturally. And clearing some out uh, to let light through to a small pasture, I'm wondering how much of the, a benefit they serve the deer. How do you manage grapevines that are creeping around five feet high? And there's also the vines that climb to the top of 50-foot trees. Now, the beautiful thing is I've got a very smart and talented staff that can answer these questions. So I threw this over to our team. I uh, heard back from Kip Adams on this one. Uh, he just says, hey, regarding grapes, they're a great food variety for wildlife species from birds to bears. Uh, grapevines can become problematic when they become so large and make it into the canopy of trees. They can literally kill overstory trees. However, in most cases, viewed, uh, grapes are viewed very positively uh, by wildlife managers. And Matt Ross adds that uh, uh, that's true about grapes killing trees. This is they can and do, but rarely do they do at a scale large enough to worry about uh, changing the composition of an entire stand. If they were up in the treetops a lot, though, I'd be cutting them back and spraying the leaf dot uh, re-sprouts enough to knock them back. So great answers there from our uh, in-house wildlife biology team. Appreciate that, guys. And then uh, one more question from Sean. Lastly, my daughter and I eat venison while my wife could take it or leave it. To justify the time spent in the woods, I want to put the best food on the table that I can. Do either of you guys have any go-to cookbooks or resources when it comes to putting wild game, especially venison, squirrel, or turkey on the table? Uh, I'll go first, Mike, and I'm going to say that I actually punted this one over to Hank Forrester, who is our the leader of our Field to Fork program, our, our R3 programs here, and also has the column in the magazine uh, with some recipes in it. He says he doesn't use many cooks, cook, uh, cookbooks, excuse me, because of the internet. There's just so much out there, and I'd agree. But he says there are tons of recipes in particular on the Meat Eater website. If you go to Meat Eater and then plus add wild and whole, there's a lot of recipes there that he really likes. He also mentions elevated wild as one. Uh, and also we have our own five, five venison recipes from NDA's Field to Fork events. So we have some recipes there as well. So uh, for me, Mike, I've just been cooking wild game and venison for so long. I don't think I, I very rarely write recipes down. I just kind of go with it. Um, what I will say is I agree with Hank on this one. Um, I was just watching the meat eater 
show over the weekend and Steve Ranella is talking about he's coming out with a series, a new series of cookbooks. I think there's four total in the series and they're covering all wild game, I believe. Uh, but so going over to that website and looking for that was a good option because some of the meals that they were making, I guess um, Steve, when he does a lot of his cooking, he actually is introducing it to his staff that not all of them are hunters um, and his children and trying to make sure that it's actually rather, you know, delicious and pleasing. So uh, I definitely say that what I do as one of my recipe options is I actually can venison. I will have to say that, uh, and that's pressure canning. Uh, I know that people might actually cold pack it or whatever it's called, but uh, I took a class at uh, Penn State's Cooperative Extension on how to pressure can. And when, even though it doesn't look pleasing in the jar, I will have to say that the taste and the consistency is that of, of high quality, high grade beef. You'll add, we put that, you know, I call it canned venison over mashed potatoes. We put gravy on that. You can make it and add it to some barbecue sauce and make it like a pulled, it has the consistency of pulled pork sandwich, but it'd be pulled venison and you can uh, melt some cheese over that and put it in a, in a submarine bun or a hoagie bun. Uh, those are all um, some of my family's favorites right off the top of my head. Yeah. I've heard a lot about canned venison. It's not something I've done myself yet. So I need to, I need to get on that. Uh, Brian writes to us. And by the way, folks in the future, when you send these, tell us what state you're from and then we'll, we'll let people know. Uh, but Brian writes and says, what advice would you give to someone looking to start a new state branch for NDA? What is something that successful branches did when they started up that you would recommend? How can I align other conservation agencies along with NDA to make a sustainable and attractive product to my fellow outdoorsmen and women in Nebraska? Ah, he does say where he's from. I just need to uh, open my eyes a little bit. Brian, thank you, first of all, for your interest in that. We really appreciate it. Our local branches across the country really are what helps get our mission on the ground. We count on you guys as leaders uh, to, to do our great work there, and we appreciate it. I'm going to uh, uh, just mention a name, Mike Edwards, Mike at DeerAssociation.com. Start with him. There We also have resources on our website that talks about starting a branch. So check those out at DeerAssociation.com. And I think I gave you some additional information in an email, but anybody out there who wants to be part of a branch, wants to start a branch, check out those resources on our website. Uh, the next one, talk to me about kids and hunting. What can we do better to get the next generation into the woods? We all know numbers are dropping. So what do we do to make sustainable, a sustainable solution to our youth? Is it a simple marketing platform? Is it change in incentives? Is it just education? Is there an opportunity for bonus tags, permits, et cetera? Uh, Brian, I think it's, it's kind of all of the above there. And what I responded to you in email, and which I'll share with our audience, check out our Field to Fork program. I mentioned Hank Forrester earlier and mentioned Field to Fork where we are more focused on younger adults and not necessarily youth because we have found a lot of success with these people who've always wanted to try hunting, but they actually, they have the resources, they have vehicles, they can do things for themselves. And then the thought process being that that all will then later result in more youth because these people will become mentors for others. And there are also a number of other organizations doing things specifically for youth. Uh, go to the deer association website and look up field to fork. And I think you'll be impressed with some of the things we've been doing there. I'm going to, I'm going to jump in from the, the side for children is that I guess the biggest thing that I would add is that I wouldn't start them off with hunting just off the bat. I would start them off with being outside and enjoying outside and that, whether that be a nature walk, hike, um, bike rails to trails, we, as we have here in Pennsylvania, but get them excited about being outside and exploring the outside. Uh, I will have to say some of the state and national parks, they will do educational segments. Uh, my daughter and I did what was called a Creek creep where we would, we walk down Creek and um, in high boots and the, one of the park uh, wardens was, you know, talking us through. And I think there's a biologist there, uh, you know, how, how to, and analyze like the healthiness of a stream by picking up rocks and looking at different bite types of bugs. Um, all those things I think are what drew us to the outdoors when we were younger is going out and just exploring and realizing that there's a greater world out there. I, I think jumping just into hunting and putting a kid right into the stand might be a little bit too aggressive and not let them see the big picture of it. So for me, I'd say start with being outside, letting them 
you know, let that spark their curiosity and then loop it in and tie it into hunting down the road. Great advice. Absolutely. Uh, this comes from Cody. It doesn't mention where he's from, but uh, two great questions here. Uh, the first is about aging deer. He says, I know how to estimate a deer's age on the hoof, but I'm curious what the best method is for accurately aging a buck after the harvest. I want to be able to proof out my age estimate and see how accurate I actually am. The way I see it, there's two ways to do this tooth wear or cementium annuli. Uh, the cementium an uh, method seems to be more accurate, but costs money and time. The tooth wear method is quick and free, but it's just an estimate and vulnerable to human error. It says, long story short, my question is this, is the cementium method worth it or is, it, is tooth wear good enough? My response to that, Cody, is it really just depends on your goals. If you think you need that specific information as part of your management plan, then I think you should spend the money and, and have the, the tooth uh, analyzed. That's going to give you the best estimate. If you're happy with, with a, just a general idea that, okay, I know this buck is at least four and a half years old, for example, or I know that this buck was a two-year-old or a doe or whatever, um, then I think you're fine with tooth wear. And we've got tremendous resources uh, available out there uh, on the National Deer Association website for you to do that. I'd also, while I'm thinking about it, become a deer steward, go through that program too. We can, uh, you can get some hands-on experience with our team doing that work. So that's my answer for that. And the second question, uh, Mike, I've, I've answered this back to Cody. I'll be interested in your response. And by the way, Cody's getting the hat this time, because this is the best question in my view. No okay. offense to the others, but you'll, you'll understand why here in a second. He said, would you rather fight 10 men that are the size of chickens or one chicken that is the size of a man? And so I said, I would rather fight the 10 chickens because a chicken the size of a man terrifies me. Your thoughts? Um, well, you know me, I'm, I'm all about um, challenge and fairness. And so, I mean, I'd probably fight the chicken that's the size of a man. So I'd feel good about myself at the end of the day. Well, there, that's why you and I were, we're yin and yang, right? We're like, you know, we're the, we're the doctor and the, not the doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. You know, I, I actually thought long and hard about this. This is an important question. And so uh, that's why Cody gets the hat and you see folks, this is the level of quality we're looking for here. If you want a hat, you gotta, you gotta bring us something. Uh, that's, that's really eye-catching. So, and if you can, if you can work deer into it somewhere, like if he had said fight deer, I might've sent him, I might've sent him the new pickup truck. So he just, just uh, missed that. Cody, if you're listening, shoot me your mailing address at nick at deerassociation.com and I'll make sure we get you a hat. All right. One more of these. And by the way, thank you everybody again for submitting the questions. I think this is going to be a, a fun part of the show going forward. Uh, when and how should you get a good count on your buck doe ratio? Should it be during summer months? Is it in the early season when deer are more relaxed? Also, what is your ideal buck ratio, buck to doe ratio, and how can you achieve it if either you have too many bucks or too many does? Uh, well, Billy, that's a great question. I did send you a detailed yeah. response on email. Uh, but in summary, that response was late summer, about the time that the bucks are done fully growing antlers, is going to be your best time to do this. We have great resources on our website about doing trail camera surveys that is going to give you an idea of what your buck to doe ratio is. Uh, it's also going to help you identify all the individual bucks that are on or near your property, which is cool too. Some people like that. Uh, I will say though, there's a disclaimer, not all states allow that. So just because we say that's a good way to survey deer, uh, don't go running out there and say, well, the NDA said we could do it. <laughs> so that's not going to help you. It might get you in more trouble. Um, but the other thing I would say in terms of what is ideal is again, it comes down to what you want to see as a manager. I mean, in a perfect world, you'd have, you know, two, two does to every buck or something like that, or even a 50-50 split would make for a pretty exciting rut for you. Um, so I would say it just depends on your management goals. But the biggest thing is don't be afraid to harvest does. And I think a lot of times does are under harvested and doe management has to be a huge, huge part of your goal if you're, if you're managing deer and especially if you want a quality, a quality hunt uh, in the fall. So again, I hate to keep pushing people to our website, but this is a good opportunity to, to just remind everybody. It's just such a tremendous resource of information. What do you have to add there, doc? I would add one more aspect to that based on how deeply this individual wanted to dive in. Um, 
I actually like information as deer coming out of winter in northern climates. Uh, I want to know exactly potentially what my carrying capacity was over, like throughout the winter, the health of my deer going forward, because it helps me make management decisions. So um, I like a, like a post-winter check as well, if at all possible. Yeah, I get it. Absolutely. I, I like leaving my trail cameras out longer into the year just for that reason, just to see what's going on out there. So, all right, that's Ask NBA Anything. Appreciate it, everyone. Again, send your questions to nick at deerassociation.com. We'd love to read them and you can get yourself a hat as well. Kristen Schmidt is our guest today. She has a really, really neat story. I think it's a story of kind of perseverance. Uh, she's a very gifted writer and she writes outdoors, but not just outdoors, by the way. Now you'll see in the next issue of Quality Whitetails, there's an article by Kristen in there. I've hired her for some other things uh, as well. Uh, and she, what's interesting is she didn't grow up with hunting. She is very good at communicating with the masses and has written for a number of really interesting publications that we'll talk about here in the interview. And so she's the type of person I think that can really help us communicate our issues to everybody out there. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Let's go ahead and bring in Kristen Schmidt. I want to welcome in Kristen Schmidt to the show. Kristen is a, I guess the best way to describe it is I see you as your writer, a darn good one. You have an amazing list of publications that you've written for outdoors related, but also a lot of mainstream stuff. And we want to talk about that for sure. You're working on a novel. And I know just from following you on social media, you're constantly working on it. It's a labor of love, I'm sure. And I think uh, the other thing is you have a really great story. And I think this is something that I think will, frankly, you may not think about it this way, but I think inspiring to a lot of people who might get, feel like they're, they're caught in a rut or, or whatnot, and they're, they want to make a change. And you have a cool story about doing that. And I want to make sure we give you a chance to talk about that. So Kristen, thank you for stepping in here. I know you're very busy on a number of fronts. I thank you for being on the show and uh, really looking forward to this. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm like I said, this is a fun opportunity and I'm, I'm excited to participate. Yeah. Like you said, you're on the different, different side of the coin this time. You're usually the one asking questions. So we're going to ask you questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you the hardest one first. This is always the hardest one. And that is uh, you, you get on a bus somewhere you're you get on an airplane and the person looks at you and says, who are you? Tell me about you. Oh, well, geez, that's a loaded question. Um, I am from the Metro Detroit area, born and raised there. Um, my whole family is still there. Um, and I did the kind of the typical thing, you know, uh, college degree, uh, got a job in a law firm. I was a legal marketing specialist. So, you know, corporate America is hardcore as I guess it could be, uh, working for a business law firm with 145 attorneys. Um, and, you know, kind of wondering if that's what I wanted to do, um, but it was what we had to do at the time. Uh, you know, my husband is a professor, uh, and at that time, early on, adjuncting at eight different colleges, or at five different colleges, eight different classes, um, you know, and we were newlyweds, had a little baby, you know, it was one of those things where you like kind of pass in the night. Um, and so in 2012, we were kind of fed up. Uh, and we both started applying for jobs. And it was basically a, whoever was going to get the job, that's where we were going to move. And I'm really fortunate that he got the job because I did not really want to continue down the legal marketing road or the corporate American road. Um, but he really wanted to continue in academics and academia. So it, it did really work out that he was the one that got the job that, that caused us to kind of shift our focus um, from city life to rural living, almost like with a blink of an eye. And um, so he took a job in Vermont at a small liberal arts college that is unfortunately no longer in existence. Um, it closed in 2019. Um, and I still recall when we told our family who, you know, this is 
you know, southeastern Michigan, everyone lives there. This is what I know. Um, we had lived a little bit in Ohio and everyone thought we were strange living that far away. And so now I'm saying, now we're gonna move to Vermont and, you know, trading our, I guess it looked austere from the outside, but it was definitely a, a money pit on the inside, a kind of house uh, that we'd bought at the cusp of the housing market crash in 2008, lost a bunch of money on it, um, kind of washed our hands of the whole thing and moved 12 hours or however many miles away from uh, Metro Detroit to the Green Mountains. Um, and then when we were there, there's not a lot of Mark, legal marketing jobs in Vermont. And so that was my background, uh, service marketing. And my husband was always like my biggest supporter. And he, he said, you know, you don't really know what you want to do right now. Why don't you write? Why don't you actually focus on that? And so uh, I'd always kind of been interested in local food, uh, sustainable agriculture. And I'd actually started pursuing a degree. I have a master's um, of science in sustainable ag. And there, so I was really into that food side of things. And I always kind of thought I would go into like food policy or um, maybe do food marketing for like a larger corporation or something like that. But instead it segued into this whole thing where suddenly I was immersed in the outdoors. And as someone that grew up in suburban Michigan um, and I wasn't that big of a fan of the outdoors when I was a kid, I would, I would choose to sit and read, um, not under a tree, but if I was forced to go outside in my parents' car. So <laughs> not exactly what you would call uh, the quintessential outdoors woman as a, as a kid. Um, but then we're in Vermont, you know, we bought this place. Uh, it was on an 11 acre shared pond. This, the shared neighbor was seasonal. So she wasn't always there, um, you know, kind of buffered with all of this forest. Uh, it was just like going from, you know, neighbors all around you, sidewalks, uh, traffic lights, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by literally dirt roads and no one. And we were the last road at the end. And after that, it just kind of, you know, went off into a two track into the distance. Um, and so I had like kind of that awakening, I guess, if you could say, where the outdoors really became something I was in, just 100% immersed in. I had my daughter, she was really excited about, you know, hunting, hunting for frogs on our pond. And, you know, um, she was more enamored with the black, or black bear uh, footprints than I was in the mud, because I didn't really like that. I'd rather see deer prints because at least I know what to do if I see one of them. Um, and it just became something that, you know, really, really grew on me. And so uh, I started working on an article and it was one of those things where like when you say, when people say you, you want to be a writer, you automatically think, um, well, at least from my perspective, that I was going to be a novelist. And that was something that I had aspired to be since I was like, you know, able to write a short story. Um, so the change and the shift to trying to be a journalist with no journalism background um, was kind of eye-opening. And, and so I started interviewing people. Um, I interviewed people in the local VOR and food, food system. I read uh, Tovar Cerulli's A Mindful Carnivore book that really was eye-opening. I interviewed him. Um, and then I started reaching out to people in the outdoor industry. And it's surprisingly very easy to reach if you kind of just, you know, throw emails their way. I remember the first person that I interviewed was actually Tiffany Lukoski. Um, she and Lee were working on their boat and she decided to answer my phone call. And so she brought him into the conversation and I got to ask all these sorts of environmental questions, um, harvesting questions and connections about local food. And, and once you have that first interview, once you say, well, I've already interviewed this person, it kind of opens the door to the other people. And on the other side of this, I don't really know how to write an article. I put something together that was mostly opinion with people's quotes, I think. Um, and I started trying to pitch that around and got countless rejections um, until I went on LinkedIn and I actually found this random National Geographic editor and I decided what the hell, because honestly, that's the question I always ask myself. And my husband and I always ask this of our daughter. It's like, what do you have to lose? They're literally gonna ignore you, say no, or say yes. I mean, you only need one yes, right? And she was the one yes. And the thing with that article was, she also showed me how to you know, shape an article, what was opinion, what, what needed to be supported. And so it was like a really, really cool experience that I didn't anticipate would actually kind of launch what I do. Um, the thing went viral, it went out in 2013. 
I still remember it was published on a Sunday. My husband was out chainsawing wood <laughs> and I had to go out and find him. And I was like, oh my God, it's up. It's like up, you know, National Geographic published my article. So since then it's like kind of snowballed and I, you know, it's, it's, it was slow to grow. It's not like you um, have those 15 minutes of fame and it just like keeps, I mean, you have to doggedly keep at it. And I've learned rejection is subjective. Um, it's either because your idea doesn't fit, the editor doesn't have that space, they don't have money for you. Um, and I keep, I tell people that all the time. I actually have uh, mentored a few of my husband's students because uh, they're interested in going into science writing or you know, outdoor journalism. And it's like, rejection, if you get hurt after one no, you're not gonna get anywhere. You know, it's, it's part of the process, it's part of life, but it's definitely part more of a, writer, a writer's life, I think, getting that rejection constantly. I want to go back to the very first part of your story and just the, you gloss over it because I think it's just your personality. Like you said, you just, you just ask yourself, well, you know, why or why not? And, you know, let's just, let's just go do this. Right. That's not easy for most people. Matter of fact, I see, I know people in my own life that I see that, and and they're living whatever, um, you know, their situation is and they're miserable and they always say they're miserable. And I say, well, change it do something different and they can't ever get past what you said. Everybody in your family is looking at you like you have three heads because you know, you moved more than 15 minutes away from everybody. Uh, It's a very bold thing to do that. Um, And so I guess your story to me is one that I think a lot of people can look at and say, well, you know, you can, you didn't start out thinking you were going to be an an outdoors writer or writer at all, but you also weren't, doing something it didn't seem like the way you describe it something that was terribly fulfilling either and lo and behold you just sort of said like you said well why why not look at doing something different and you did it what's the what's the secret to that I mean how is that just your personality or or did, did you ever have times where you doubted that move oh gosh yeah I mean not the move no we were so fed up with so many things um you know a lot of a lot of it, I think the catalyst really was our daughter. Um, you know, he's he's working so much. He was gone six a.m. to ten thirty at night because of the commutes between the you know the different colleges. And you know, I'm working a nine to five job, but also you know dropping her off at daycare and then like basically being a single mom while also having some outside of work hour events and stuff I had to run. And we were just so fed up, so tired um, of doing this dance that it seemed like everyone else thought we should do or um, was so traditional to do or something, you know? I mean, we started looking at her and she was two at the time when we moved too. And it's just, it wasn't worth it because I wasn't that enamored with the company I was working with. I mean, it's nice. I don't, I'm still friends with some of the people I still work there, but it wasn't like my passion. It was the job that gave me healthcare because we needed mine, not my husband's he didn't have any at the time, you know, and, and other factors like that. Um, yeah, no, I would say that my daughter was really the catalyst for us doing what we did. Uh, we wanted more, you know, more self-reliance and less reliant on other things, I guess. So, um, even career-wise, you know, carving my own path, you know, leaving corporate America, I mean, no one told me to do that. And I've had people tell me that it seems kind of amazing, but I guess to me, it feels more like uh, I unearthed a little bit of determination I didn't know I had until I had to have it. And, and being fed up, I mean, that's pretty motivating with, with a lot of things, as I'm sure you've experienced yourself. Yeah, I think it definitely is. Um, as a person that moved to North Dakota, which, you know, when I first had that opportunity in front of me, I didn't realize that people lived in North Dakota. I just heard it was a beautiful place. So yeah, you have to take a leap of faith sometimes. And you did that and uh, fed up is interesting that you, that you put it that way. And so I applaud you for doing that. Like I said, it's a, it's a really cool story. And I, and so especially the part where you, you grew up near Detroit and you don't have this natural outdoor sort of background and ethic, but now I watch what you're doing and you're, you're kind of killing it though. You've, you've really figured it out and you're, you're all, you're all, uh, all in on this. And so tell us a little bit about that transition because a lot of people, uh, I assume that a lot of people that listen to this show are people who grew up 
with, with hunting and outdoors. And it's just what they did. So it was an easy transition, but you've come from a different place. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, I mean, it just, I think it's just what you grow up with. Uh, you know, my uncle hunted, we knew of hunting, um, you know, he had his hunting dogs and he would come over and talk to us about it, but that was pretty much everything I knew. Um, and then I met my husband, he comes from more of an outdoorsy family. So he had, you know, the up North cottage, I'd go up North with him, um, when we were dating and, and hang out. I mean, he showed, he shot, you know, showed me how to shoot a rifle. Um, but like, I really think a lot of it came out when I was writing that first article and talking to so many women who were hunters, um, not just the ones that we know of, but some of the other, other, you know, lesser known, I guess, that aren't like, you know, in the spotlight and just hearing their connections to food and why it was important. And it just made sense to me because, I mean, I actually did grow up with, a, my mother is a huge gardener. So, I mean, I grew up with that, that side of things and it just kind of merged them together for me, if that makes sense. Um, and, and I mean, I have dabbled in bow hunting. I, I, I tried, I, you know, it just, it's the time thing for me. It's, when we moved, you know, we moved away from any other support system. So it's literally the three of us, you know, and, and I am able to have the flexibility to be working from home before COVID, you know, before everyone else was, but to, to have that flexibility and to be there for my daughter as she grows up. So if she's not into hunting and she's not right now, she's, you know, she's supportive of it, but she's not like going to actively do it. Um, it. It doesn't allow me to have that same amount of time. Now that she's getting older and has, you know, she's she's said that she would try going duck hunting with us. And we have um, right by like a, a nice wetlands area here. So might give that a shot uh, next year now that we're done with all this moving and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's just, and my husband has hunted like off and on our whole like relationship. So it's, that's always been like a constant in, in that side of things. And um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy, I enjoy the connection of food. Um, I like knowing where food comes from at all times, even though we don't, I don't hunt. I always buy all of our meat from this local farm here. And, um, you know, where it's, you know, you're buying it directly from the farmer as opposed to the grocery store as much as possible. So I think there is some connection in, in, in any way that you do that, as long as you are aware of where your food actually comes from. I think you have to hunt to do that. I mean, farming, supporting farming is the same way, supporting farmers. So Kristen, let's, let's talk about food just for a second here. In regards to hunting, that's something that in some situations or in some circles gets glossed over. Uh, we kind of get hung up with the antlers, if you will, or, you know, the length of a turkey's beard. But what have you seen in your conversation, in your circles with individuals and their thought on that in regards to the, the drive or the reward of actually harvesting from the land, whether it be, you know, farming, hunting or otherwise? Well, I mean, I think anyone that is that connected either by raising the animal and letting it grow and really cultivating it to um, someone that's really taking the time to go out there and put the hours in and sit and glass and, you know, obviously go home empty, empty handed. Uh, I mean, I think that that connection is, it's almost the same. It's just, it's two different, it's two different sides of the coin, I guess. It just depends on if you prefer cattle and beef, or if you want, you know, venison and, and other, you know, javelina or whatever people, you know, want to go after. Um, I know in my conversations, I, I mean, I just spoke with Randy Newberg. Um, I wrote that, uh, the cover story for USA Today, Hunt and Fish, it's out now. Um, and he is like, you know, He's, he's a hunter. He defines himself as a hunter. He is nothing but a hunter, but he will harvest and eat and use every piece of that animal. And he's adamant about that. And there's a lot of people like that, that people don't realize that just because they have to hunt the big game for the, for the camera doesn't necessarily mean that they don't use it all or, you know, really appreciate what they're actually after. I think that their value system, there's a lot of really, really strong ethics and ethos and values in, in the outdoor community, as well as the farming community. I think that there really is a heavy connection there. I mean, raising food is raising food. You've mentioned a couple of times through the conversation, publications you've written for, 
give us a, it's really impressive to me. Could you give us a list of some of the different uh, places you've written for? Oh, it's, it's, it's pretty broad. Yeah. Um, well, National Geographic, Outside Magazine, Smithsonian, uh, written for Marie Claire. I wrote a, a profile on a female game warden for Glamour. Uh, Washington Post, um, USA Today, countless different publications for them. They, they do a lot of specialty pubs, so not just hunt and fish. Um, I've done some field and stream, range through 65, uh, National Deer Association. <laughs> yep, that's coming out, actually. I'm glad you said that because the next uh, issue of our magazine, the fall issue, you're debuting in our magazine, so we're excited about that. And yeah, I, I think that that's going to be an interesting article on daylight savings time and, and deer vehicle collisions. Um, and then I've also done a lot of like, uh, I guess, content writing for other companies uh, like Patagonia and uh, Sitka Gear are two that come to mind. Uh, so yeah, I'm like kind of all over the place. And I like, I like bringing the outdoor uh, equation into like non-outdoor publications, which is why I have pushed it into glamour of all places, although it did really bug me when they changed my word angler to fisher because they didn't think their audience would understand the, the difference, I think. But um. yeah, no, and that's I think I first saw your writing in uh, on GoHunt.com. Yep. I'm a big contributor there. Yep. Yeah. And so and I so I started to pay attention because I didn't I hadn't heard your name before. And I and I became, I guess, quietly kind of a fan of your work. And then eventually reached out to you and had you do some things for us, which went really well. And I learned very quickly through that um, your your professionalism is impeccable, and your attention to detail. You, I can tell that you take your work uh, extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. And also because you write for a lot, you write from everything from hardcore outdoors to mainstream. I'm going to ask you this question because I think you're going to have you're going to be able to see this better than I can or other people who have been really living this, this outdoor thing for our entire lives. And that is the national deer association As we continue to spread our wings and, and grow. One of the things that we would love to do is have more, have the masses appreciate deer in a way that they, that we believe they deserve to be appreciated. Meaning eight out of every 10 people who buy a hunting license are going to hunt deer. And that's far more than any other species. When you look at how we fund all wildlife conservation, a lot of it is on the backs of deer because that's why people buy a license. That's what people hunt. Mm -hmm. And I think that the majority of people considering that 5% or less of, of the people in the United States actually hunt, the majority of the people look at a deer as something that all oh, there's a deer or I don't, I just hit a deer with my car and they're frustrated or it ate my flower garden, but I think deer are underappreciated. And so what I would like to do, my vision for the NDA is to eventually grow membership of, of people that might not even, they may not want to hunt a deer, but they appreciate deer and they appreciate hunting because maybe they're a bird watcher in Iowa, for example, and they understand how deer and deer hunters fund wildlife conservation. So the way you communicate in all these different areas uh, and also the way you've come to doing all the things that you do right now, whether it be writing or uh, your sustainable farming work, even in your own backyard, is that too pie in the sky? Is that doable? I mean, I think it's just bringing a broader awareness and consciousness to them beyond a target for hunters. I feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of people find them as as a nuisance animal um, because of you know overwhelming numbers in, in in cities and urban areas and the fact that they'll eat your you know your landscaping. Um, but I do think that half of it's just you know bringing the awareness full circle in a way, um, showing maybe you know showing how much of you know the conservation funding and things come from those, you know, those, those license sales. I mean, that's huge. And I think that that was one of the first things me, uh, you know, not even delving into this, this area until I was like, you know, in my thirties, um, I wasn't really aware of that. I mean, why would I be unless I was in the outdoor hunting community or grown up with someone that told me that I think that that is almost like a hidden, that's a hidden agenda item in a way or a hidden, you know, funding option that people don't realize. I mean, you, 
even like the, oh, you're required to buy the duck stamp. It's like, it's a requirement. You have to buy it, whether or not you want it, you know? And those things, they're the way they fund other like waterfowl conservation things because they know it's a requirement. You know, they get at least that, that small token, that small portion. And, and so I think that the broader awareness of, of that would be a, a, good, a good starting point. I don't know what that means, um, but I think that, that a lot of like fish and wildlife, even in their press releases, always like kind of throw that as a last line. And if you're reading anything, no one reads that. It's, it, it ha you know, it's just not, it's not noticed. I think by the general non-outdoor recreational communities. I do think though that like, you know, bringing in larger non-hunting focused community or uh, corporations or companies like Patagonia and like REI that support hunting as a side, you know, obviously they're not against it, but then they have the whole other side of like people that do outdoor recreational activities and maybe bringing them into the fold would actually benefit too. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, you said something right off the bat that, that caught my attention. And that was that we're all, we're so focused on the hunting of the animal which is great. And I don't want people to freak out listening to this. Like, well, what do you mean? NDA is not about hunting the animal or it's, it's nothing like that at all. Actually, it's the exact opposite of that. And my concern is for, it's for the animal and it's for the future of hunting. So we, we work for, for the deer and for the hunters and for conservation. And in my way of thinking, if we are indeed only four to 5% of the population, it makes it really hard for us to move the needle on policy that impacts deer and impacts hunters and impacts our ability to hunt, impacts the amount of public land we have access to. And so my thinking is the bigger percentage we have of people that appreciate deer and appreciate hunting, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to move the needle uh, on policy and get the attention of politicians and so on. Because right now it's really hard with just that 5%. So it just seems to me that getting more people under the roof for conservation and doing it through deer just mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe, maybe I'm way off base there. No, I mean, like, I think that there's been a lot of support on like migration corridors. I mean, that has been, you know, people understand that because they say, oh, well, I mean, it's definitely helping like mule deer and elk, but it's also helping all these other animals. So they have like that more broader understanding of, of like the, the general application of that you know, as, as a principle, I think that those have, those, those issues, at least out West have been like, you know, a little bit more um, public support and things of, of that nature. Same with like, if you, you know, you bring up, you know, vehicle collisions and things like that. I mean, people realize the value of these animals, but if they're only looking at it through a hunting lens, it's kind of hard to switch that. So I think it's like switching it to more of a broader focus, you know, less, I mean, hunting is obviously a huge portion of it. And of course, you know, venison is good, but uh, you know, it's not the only reason those animals are out there, you know, and I think that's kind of maybe the, the broader, broader, bigger picture of it all. So through your writing, I, I want, I want to transition a little bit here because I'm curious about this. Okay. You have interviewed a, a lot of, a lot of different people. And so I got to imagine, is there a favorite character, someone that, that stands out. It doesn't have to be one person. You don't have to pick one if you've got a couple, but there are some that stand out to you as sort of your favorites. And then also maybe um, some of the, some of the, your favorite articles that you've ever written. The one that I, I continually go back to and, and, you know, several years ago, um, Heather Wilson, uh, she's a pilot biologist for the U S fish and wildlife service. And she does migratory bird counts and she lives in Alaska and she's just so cool. I mean, you know, it's like, she's one of those people that like, I always say to my daughter, all these people I get to interview all the time. I'm always like, isn't that a cool job? Like, I didn't know that job existed. You know, like growing up, you're like doctor, lawyer, teacher. And I, my dad was an engineer, so I could add the fourth one. So it's like seeing what these people get to do and like what they figured out as a job. Like, this is what she does. She flies around in her little, you know, plane and counts birds and then like lives in Alaska with her husband. Who's like, a, he does something with he does something with planes out there. I don't remember. And they have two kids and like, it was the coolest article. It was a, uh, did that one for a Smithsonian, but it was just such a fun profile. And she was so willing to just talk and like, just tell me everything. And she was very cool. Very cool woman. Um, Rob Greenfield is somebody who is, he's an environmental activist. Uh, I've written about him twice now. Um, staying in 
casual contact with him because he's always up to something different. Um, the first time I wrote about him, he was wearing a specially made suit and walking around New York City collecting all of the trash he would accumulate in the course of 30 days to show visually how much trash a single person makes or, you know, uses. And, and so that, that was the first article I wrote about him because, you know, that was obviously a, a spectacle in New York City, which is what the whole point of it was. And then the second article I wrote about him was um, he was down in Florida and actually and I went down there on National Geographic's dime and he was growing and foraging all of his own food for an entire year. So that was, so we went down and, you know, hung out with him for an entire day. And like, he just like, he's just so passionate about that. And I love when you, you, you find somebody that like, that's their passion and they will share so much with you and they just want you to understand like i mean he was plucking grapefruits from the people's trees and like walking around showing us all these wild berries you could eat and like you know that's somebody that really just that is that is just who they are you know and, and those kinds of stories are my favorite i mean i i kind of got that feeling um you know i interviewed remy warren a couple years ago and i didn't know much about him prior to that i mean i i I, my, my knowledge of hunting is like this. I, I'm usually up on things, but like for some reason, he just wasn't in my radar. And he was, he was very cool to talk to. And I, and we've, you know, stayed in contact and that's why I was able to talk to him about Randy for that last piece. But, you know, he, he's also somebody that just, that's his passion. I mean, he's been doing that since he was little. You can tell when you talk to people just like, there's nothing else they could picture themselves doing. And those are the, those are the stories that, I like, those are the stories that really mean something to me. And like, I, I think about like often, you know? So Kristen, are your stories more inspired based or are you given assignments or is there a combination of both? Um, well, it, it started out with me coming up with ideas. Um, I've gotten to the point now that I have many editors that will send me um, assignments. And, um, but all of the stories I do, I try to keep a positive spin on. I don't don't like negative stories. I don't like um, causing grief for somebody for no reason. I like balanced pieces. Um, and that's like my biggest takeaway, I think, is uh, I don't write things that make um, headlines because it's bad news, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I wrote about a uh, falconer farmer, um, Jenna Wagenrich for uh, Patagonia. And she's, I mean, she's a very cool person and but she has to deal with a lot of internet issues with internet trolls. And, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that even though I wrote this wonderful positive story about her, you know, that still happens. And so that's why I try not to have that be, you know, any, any piece of the articles I write. Now, have you ever started an article or do each and every one start with a focus? And does that focus change? as you gain more information, um, has that happened? And, and is, that, is that something that's common or is it someone, something that you just kind of let the story write itself once you're collecting that information? I think it kind of depends on the story and the, and the storyline. Um, if it's a profile on somebody, I mean, obviously your main source is that person, but I love getting all the secondary interviews to really get flavor and like anecdotes about them and like little side stories and stuff. Um, if it's something that's more journalistic reporting, uh, I just did like a grizzly bear attack and bear attack roundup for free range American. And so that one kind of, you know, once you start doing the research, you realize you got to reach out to all these other individuals. And, um, I talked to, uh, somebody at the interagency grizzly bear committee and got some, you know, additional information on, on whether or not it really was a trend. And he was like, no, it's not, but the media wants you to think so. Um, so like that, you know, you start with a question that you want to answer and then you kind of either answer your question or your question changes, I guess, if that makes sense. I think that's one of the things I appreciate about your writing, Kristen, is that uh, it's refreshing, right? Like you said, there a lot of writers try to lead you somewhere. They try to get you to click on something and you're just you're you're finding the story and you're reporting the story and you're, you're getting it right from the people. And so I think at a time where we're so caught up in negative news stream and whatnot, it's just really refreshing to, to have your work no, um, and to read, read that kind of stuff as opposed to a lot of the other stuff that's out there. Well, thank you. That's nice to hear. 
and and I'll even say too is is you have pitched some ideas to me. We're working on chronic wasting disease stuff, and they're very. Uh, you come at them from really unique perspectives, which I think is really cool. Like you, you will pitch something that I hadn't even thought of. And as a matter of fact, even the article that's going to be in the upcoming issue of Quality Whitetails is an, a very interesting one like that that people uh, may not have immediately thought about. And so I've I actually got a chance to read it uh, as I get the sneak preview of the magazine before it comes out, and it was really it was really great. So I think people are going to like that. Um, where can, where can people find your stuff? And also before we actually, maybe before we get into that, you're, you're writing a novel. I want to give you a chance to tell us about that. Is that, where did that come from? And, and where, uh, what is the, what's the plan with that? Well, yeah, so I am working on a novel, getting a novel out into the world. Let's put it this way. I have, I have written books that are very much shelved. So I've not, uh, I have written novel length manuscripts that will never see the light of day, let's put it that way. But this one, um, hopefully will. Uh, I, I worked on um, writing this uh, manuscript um, and I signed with my literary agent uh, in October. And so she's worked very hard to get it out there to publishers. Um, it's uh, circulating right now to several still. Um, it's a very long process. Uh, it's nothing I've experienced as far as like um, writing for popular media where you, you know, you send a, you send an idea, you send a pitch. Um, and if you don't hear back in two weeks, then it's like they didn't want it. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like, that's the time frame here is, you know, you send this out into the world and then you wait, you know, six to eight months. So, um, so that one's still circulating, but in the interim, I'm also um, three quarters of the way through writing the second one, which could either be, you know, part of that one or standalone on its own. And I hope to deliver that manuscript to my agent this fall, so then that one can go out too. Um, both of them center around the same main character. So uh, it's a female game warden in Vermont, so my old stomping grounds, and and. They involve, uh, both involve a, a crime that needs to be solved, but I can't really say a whole lot more about that right now. <laughs> yeah, I get it. But when it comes out, I'm going to be one of the first people to buy it. I can assure you that. So I'm looking I'll send, forward. I'll send you a copy if that, if that, if it happens, you get a copy. <laughs> it's happening. I, I don't, I don't doubt you one bit. And so, uh, I don't know where you get your, your energy. I know you're involved in a lot of things. And I, I just mentioned a few seconds ago where people can find you, uh, folks, Kristen is a really uh, interesting social media follow and you'll you'll understand what I'm saying when I talk about her work ethic and all the things that she's working on and the tens of thousands of words she's writing all the time so tell us tell us where we can find you uh, well I am uh, on Twitter at Kristen underscore Schmidt and I am on Instagram at Kristen underscore a underscore Schmidt so pretty easy to find also have a website Kristen Schmidt.com so all that stuff's there as well as uh, article clips and everything We'll be sure to get that in the listing here for the podcast so people can find you easily. Uh, Kristen, with your schedule, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to do this with us. It was a lot of fun and um, looking forward to continuing to work with you to help us refine our message a little bit and get more people under the roof. And I think just for the better, for the betterment of deer and hunting, we need more people. And I think that someone like you can really help us get there. No, thanks so much, Nick. Mike, I'm a big fan of Kristen's, as you know. Um, we need people like her to advance our message to the masses. I mean, this is somebody who is a very skilled outdoor writer, but she also has written for Glamour, National Geographic, uh, among others, many others. And if you check out her website, you'll see the different places where she's written for. Um, I, I think that that's, I love, I love hardcore outdoor writers, the people that have been hunting for 40 years or whatever, and they've got great stories to tell. But if we want to spread our message, get more people under the tent, for example, to care about deer, care about conservation and, and what those two things mean to each other, we need people like Kristen to help us spread that message. Well, it's just not, and not taking anything away from Kristen at all, but this is, we need more people to help share that message. And I think the positive light here is that too many of, like I'm actually speaking on the negative side of that, too many of us are an all or none type of mentality, either you hunt or you don't, but we have to realize that there are people out there that might be curious and that might be willing to entertain the thought of, you know, a wild or a hunting type of lifestyle. And Kristen's story is that story. 
where there was something that called her in that and her husband as well into that direction as a way of life. And I think the message that she has is something that needs to be heard by many people that let's not be, let's not exclude anybody. Let's give everybody a chance to participate in this really interesting lifestyle, hobby, recreation, however you want to look at it. And let's not exclude. Yeah. It's always hardest for people like you and I, who we've just always been hunting for as long as we could hunt. And so in some ways that makes us the worst people to communicate to others about it, where someone like Kristen comes in with a fresh set of eyes. And I still maintain this vision for the NDA that we will have a lot of people that join our organization. They have no intention of shooting a deer, but they care about deer and they care about hunting. And they're people who support deer and hunting and conservation and that whole big circle. And because we need that, we need people to help us spread our message whenever we're fighting these battles on the policy front in particular, and who are just really sensitive and supportive of what we do. So uh, I thought Kristen's message there was a good one for sure. Hey, we got out a little bit here this week, Mike, and uh, kicked the dirt around and we're, we're getting itchy here. We're going to be, uh, the podcast will hit on Wednesday. We'll be hunting on Saturday. Yeah, I got an exclusive tour of um, the Nick Pinizzato property. So I was glad to see some of the changes that you've made because I actually saw it actually the day that it closed. So you've made some, made some tremendous changes and I'm excited for you. I, I'm, I'm really excited to hear the stories that are going to be coming my way from you and that place as you move forward. So I'm excited for this season in general. Well, I appreciate that. And it's kind of anti, it's almost anticlimactic in a way that hunting season starting because I've been so focused on the management of the place. Like to, to me, like I had a, a really proud moment when I, I set up one of my trail cameras over a food plot and I got pictures of deer out there eating the food plot. And so it's in daylight. Like, yeah. In daylight. In the middle of the day. Yeah. They're just using it all day. And I, I just, to me, that was like a proud moment because a year, a year ago this time, that place was just sort of an abandoned old natural gas well site in that particular filled with photo. junk filled, filled with, with a trailer junk. load of junk yeah that's a good point yeah we hauled trailer loads of junk out of there but uh that's why that's why i enjoy management so much because it just it makes it it's a it's an all-year labor of love and the the hunting is just as crazy as it may seem in, in a lot of ways it's kind of the smallest part of it so anyway yeah it was good we got out we we did some camera work together um i got out and seeded some winter rye uh, which was a suggestion you made after seeing my food plots. And I did that right before we got all this rain that came through. So awesome. um, living the good life here in terms of luck, in terms of rain. But uh, as, as we head into this, this first, uh, first day, Mike, how you feeling? You, you ready to go? You feel like you're all locked in? Uh, actually months ago, I said I was, and now I've changed my mind. Uh, my new bow came in, my test arrows came in. I'm, I'm not going to, pull the Admiral out one last time. I'm going to let that bow retire with that successful late season doe hunt that I had last year. And I'm going to wait until I'm ready with that bow. And so I might not be going on the first day. I mean, I'm, I mean, I can always pick up the recurve and I might uh, carry it for, for a walk, if you will, and do some scouting. I do have some cameras on uh, some state game lands that I wanted to explore this year. So I might just um, just kind of still hunt my way through, pick a spot and sit down just like I used to back when I was younger and maybe have a ball with that until my new bow's up and fully functional. And I'm comfortable with it. Well, you and I both took does on opening day last year, which was really cool. I took one in the morning and you helped me get it out and you took one in the evening and there you have it. Like we had a great day uh, last year on opening day. So I'm hope I'm hopeful you can be out there and be ready. Uh, and because it'd be cool to do that again, I know I'm anxious to get out and just uh, get the fresh air and spend some time on stand. And, uh, you know, it's that time of year. It's hard to believe, but uh, I know that the temperatures in the Northeast have really cooled down and I've just spent some time on the phone this week with some friends in the South and things are even cooling off there. So it's, it's truly, this is the, this is the Super Bowl of our year, folks, deer hunters, managers, and so on. So I, I would remind you, share your stories with us. Send me your pictures, nick at deerassociation.com. I love seeing that stuff. That'll never get old for me. And maybe we'll talk about them here on the show or even bring you on as a guest to tell your story. 
because that's what the coffee and beer show really is all about. Folks, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Stitcher, to name a few. Or just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe from there. As the doctor mentioned earlier, we do appreciate your ratings, so please continue to do that. We do actually watch that stuff. So uh, again, if you could give us a rating, that helps our show be more visible to more listeners. And just tell your friends about us. If you like the show, you like the variety we bring, tell them. We welcome the listeners. More information about the National Deer Association. Please visit our website. We talked about it a bunch, bunch of times, deerassociation.com. Become a member. Take advantage of one of those membership promos that I told you about at the beginning of the show. You get our free newsletter, which is always loaded with great content. That comes out every Thursday. Uh, just a lot of reasons to become a member. If you're just a listener now and you haven't been a member yet, I think there's great value in, in becoming a member of this organization. So check that out. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Once again, folks, folks, we thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoy doing this. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. <laughs>